The Lord be with you. Welcome uh, once again to our time of worship together. Uh, before I begin, I just have a quick announcement. Um, a few days ago, um, our pastor Eric uh, proposed to Kelly, and I didn't actually confirm this, but Kelly, I'm assuming you said yes. That's correct. Okay, she's nodding, I think. Uh, congratulations, you guys. Wow. Um, let's pray together. God, we thank you again for uh, this time that we have together, and we lift up this time to you. Uh, may you be pleased with the worship that we have to offer, and would you speak your word to us, and hearing, help us to obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is now the fourth uh, in a series of eight sermons I'm preaching on the Beatitudes. So far, we've heard that the poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That those who mourn are blessed because they shall be comforted. And last week, that the meek are blessed because they will inherit the earth. And today, Jesus tells us, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because they will be satisfied. I said in the first sermon that the list of eight Beatitudes forms a kind of sandwich. The first and last Beatitudes are like the bread and because they have the same blessing and are in the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And then the six Beatitudes in between them look to the future, and you can think of them as any meats or vegetables you like in whatever sandwich that you like. They shall be or will be comforted. They shall or will inherit the earth. They shall be or will be satisfied, and so on. And so this way of thinking about the Beatitudes reminds us that these declarations are a present reality in the kingdom of heaven, but that we are also waiting for their future fulfillment. There is another way to think about them. We can look at the Beatitudes as two groups of four, with each group of four referencing and concluding with righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then the eighth Beatitude, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it might surprise you, as I was, that the word righteousness in its noun form only appears seven times in the entire gospel of Matthew. Even more surprising to me was the fact that in the gospel of Mark, the word righteousness does not appear at all. And it appears only once in the Gospel of Luke, in a prayer offered by Zechariah. Even in the parallel passages, such as Jesus' baptism and in Jesus' teaching, Mark and Luke ignore the word. They leave the word righteousness out. And so it must be for Matthew that righteousness, this idea of righteousness, this word, is a unique and vital interpretive lens in understanding Jesus is teaching. Righteousness first appears in Matthew during Jesus' baptism. John the baptizer objects to the idea of baptizing Jesus 
But Jesus insists that he baptize him and he tells him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is actually the very first words that Jesus speaks in the gospel of Matthew. From the very beginning, from his very first words, we see that Jesus is going to act in such a way to fulfill all righteousness. His baptism, which marks the inauguration of his ministry, somehow fulfills righteousness. And then the seventh and the last time that we see this word righteousness is also a reference to John the baptizer, who like Jesus will teach or did teach the way of righteousness. And Jesus rebukes the false teachers and leaders and their false way. And he says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. He taught the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. Now, between those two occurrences, the other five times that the word righteousness appears in the gospel are all in the Sermon on the Mount. So we can see that it's vital to Jesus's teaching. It's central to what he has to say. In addition to the two times that appears in the Beatitudes, it appears in Matthew 5, 20, where Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And then in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. As you can see, righteousness is associated with God and God's kingdom. God's kingdom, as Pastor Dohi has been teaching us, is where God is the king and God's word is the law. It's where God rules. Righteousness is a mark of those in God's kingdom. And so we can imagine the way that God would want to order his kingdom. And again, as Pastor Dohi shared today, to care for each and every citizen, every member of that kingdom. So righteousness is what's going to characterize life in the kingdom. What is then righteousness? Broadly speaking, righteousness is justice. It's a kind of rightness. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 20, that whatever righteousness may be, it must exceed, or our righteousness must exceed the righteousness as demonstrated by the scribes and the Pharisees who were reputed to be paragons of righteousness because they supposedly followed God's word to the letter. But Jesus explained it this way. He said, you know, I know that you've heard that you shouldn't kill, but I'm telling you, you can't even be angry or insult your brother. I know that you've heard that you must not commit adultery. Well, I'm telling you that you must not even look at someone with lust in your heart. You've heard that you should love your neighbors. I'm telling you, love your enemies. You've heard all sorts of things about what it is to be righteous, but I'm telling you that it is far more than keeping the letter of the law. Justice in relationships, 
genuine faithfulness and love for others requires far more than simple obedience to a set of rules. Jesus then moves on to explain and talks about these three common religious practices, which he calls acts of righteousness, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Most of us probably don't think of these things as acts of righteousness, right? We, we think of them as spiritual disciplines. But Jesus says, you know, these are acts of righteousness. And he says, don't do them for show. Don't practice your righteousness in order to be seen by others. These acts of piety, these acts of righteousness are supposed to demonstrate the love that we have received from God. They are not personal acts of piety to demonstrate our own goodness. You give alms, you pray for forgiveness, you fast for justice in solidarity with your neighbors, not in superiority over your neighbors. In other words, there are signs of God's justice, God's righteousness, not your own. They are for the community and for God's kingdom. I know that among certain Christian groups, righteousness is often uh, focused almost entirely on individual piety or morality. It's all about personal righteousness or being right with God. And very little, if any, uh, is there a sense of social responsibility of what it is to be righteous with God uh, and with people. And of, of course, it's important to be right with God. But biblical righteousness is all about others. Righteousness is fundamentally relational. It's about love of neighbors. So I think in our present, present context, for example, this might mean that you demonstrate this kind of righteousness when you vote, when you protest, when you write to your local politicians, when you give to charity, when you get to uh, know your neighbors, when you pray, when you volunteer, and in so many other ways, pursue this righteousness of God for others so that others can have this rightness. It doesn't have to be something heroic or on some massive national scale. For example, um, the mayor's office in New Brunswick told me recently that the most important act of social justice that people in New Brunswick can do today and he was calling out the churches in New Brunswick. He said that the most important act of social justice you can do right now is to fill out the census. Fill out the census. Because that enables the city to get their fair share of the funds so they can continue the kinds of social services that are much needed in this town. Doesn't seem like much. But that's an act of righteousness. So one aspect of righteousness points to our right and just conduct toward others as we live together in God's kingdom. But there is a second aspect of righteousness that we must also think about, and that is the righteousness of God. In the biblical perspective, there is no such thing as righteousness outside of the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness of God which makes possible our own righteousness. As Jesus preached from uh, Isaiah 61, he said that the spirit of the Lord God is upon him because the Lord appointed him to bring good news to the poor. God has anointed him 
to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He does all these things so that, so that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, that those that he has come to save might be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that God may be glorified. Jesus declares with Isaiah what God has done for us. Before making any sort of ethical demand for us to follow, God declares his blessing. God rescues first. God's, God's righteousness comes to us as divine grace. The oaks of righteousness are the plantings of the Lord. It is God who plants. It is God who does it. As Titus 3.5 reminds us, he saved us not because of works, of works done by us in righteousness, that is not our own discipleship, but according to God's mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And we see this repeated throughout the scriptures, especially in the apostles Paul's writings. It is this righteousness that God has fulfilled for us in the death of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 1.17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. The, right, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is to be received in faith. And as it says in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The righteousness of God not only saves us, but leads us to live in and for righteousness. And thus Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So it is a righteousness that is given to us. So righteousness is both a gift that comes from God's reign and God's kingdom and my response in faithful discipleship in light of that good news. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness they shall be satisfied by God and by God's righteousness. But at the same time, we are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Both are in play. Donald Sr., uh, um, a biblical scholar, summarizes it this way. God's justice is his saving activity on behalf of his people. Human justice or righteousness is the effort we make to respond to God's goodness by carrying out his will. And so we want to keep the, both aspects of righteousness in our lives. And Jesus says that it is these folks who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be satisfied. That is that they will be satisfied by God. I think one of the difficulties for me in thinking about the, uh, these beatitudes is that I don't really know what it is to hunger 
or to thirst. I might skip a meal uh, or miss a meal because I'm busy and feel a little bit hungry. I might go for a run outside on a hot day and come home and not have Gatorade in the house, in the fridge and feel thirsty. But I've never really lived with the kind of anxiety and fear of not having any food in the house or thinking that I don't know where I'm gonna get clean water. My only regular experience with thirst uh, is really just eating too many potato chips and wishing I had a Coke to wash it down with. Most of us have the option of fasting, the luxury of skipping a meal, knowing that there is always plenty of food waiting around. We might be hungry for a meal at our favorite restaurant or the latest drink at Starbucks, but that's not really hunger or thirst, right? That's, it's, just a, it's just a mild interest or preference for some luxury. But hunger is the word that's used to describe what Jesus felt after fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. Jesus said, I thirst after being beaten and hung on the cross and left to die. To hunger and thirst is closer to starving and dying of thirst. And I think Jesus here is getting at our fundamental desire. What is it that really, really, that you really, really want? And how badly do you want it? What is as precious and as fundamental to you as food and water? There's an old story about a young man who wanted to find God. You've probably heard some version of this story at some point in your life. A young man seeks out a revered old monk meditating by a river and tells him that he wants to become his disciple so that he can find God. He assumes that the monk is closer to God. The monk then suddenly grabs the man by the neck and plunges his head into a river. He holds it there for a while as the man struggles. The man kicks and fights in terror until finally he is released. The young man screams at the old monk, demanding to know why he did what he did. The monk asks him, tell me, what did you want most of all when you were underwater? The young man answered, air. And then the monk tells him, go home and come back when you want God as much as you just wanted air right now. Can any of us say that we are starving or are so parched and wanting righteousness, the righteousness of God, as much as we want air to breathe? Is there anything that we desire that much? Is there something that you want so badly that your life depends on it, that without it, your life would not matter? Put another way, whatever it is that you desire that much, that really is a picture of your God. Is there a desire for God, as the psalmist wrote, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The people of God ought to be grieved at unrighteousness and injustice. As a Peter, the apostle Peter writes, we ought to be a people who are waiting, who are waiting, just earnestly waiting for a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is waiting for the kingdom of God to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We ought to hunger for God's righteousness and God's victory. We ought to be hungry, not just for the reformation of individual and personal conduct, but for the transformation of institutions and kingdom-wide systems. We ought to yearn to see that the arc of the moral universe, as Martin Luther King Jr. remarked, bend toward justice. Most of us though, I think most of the time, we want other things than God and God's righteousness. We hunger for our own recognition, for our own significance, our own satisfaction. We thirst for friendship, for affection, for success, and these days for just basic human physical contact. These other things are not necessarily wrong or bad, but sometimes those desires are misplaced and they have us ruined for our more fundamental hunger and thirst. It's like the desire for junk food that ruins our desire for healthy foods. Studies have shown, for example, that when we eat some junk food, saturated fats, it tricks our entire body to switching off the system that tells us how hungry we are and whether we've eaten enough. Brain chemistry gets altered by a steady diet of junk food and our brains mislead us into thinking that we want more bad foods. Similarly, I think because of sin, it's like we have been conditioned to want, to hunger and thirst for the wrong things rather than for righteousness. We're like the woman at the well, looking for water, not realizing that Jesus is offering eternal living water. We are like the prodigal son, craving what the pigs were eating, not realizing the father is waiting with a feast and a fattened calf. We're like the 5,000 who are hungry and satisfied with the loaves of bread and fish, failing to realize that Jesus is the bread of life. We're in constant, we're in constant need of relearning the lesson of Ecclesiastes, that all the riches, all the pleasures, all the wisdom of the world will not satisfy this hunger and thirst within us. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We spend much of our time on a hedonic treadmill that goes nowhere and will not fulfill the deepest longing in our hearts. We need to realize 
as St. Augustine realized, that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Similarly, Pascal said, all men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. That's what we want. We want happiness. And so we seek for this happiness in all kinds of things which cannot ultimately satisfy because, he says, this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. There is an appetite, a restlessness, an infinite abyss that only God can satisfy and fill. It's God's righteousness. And so the blessed are not those who have all their earthly desires met. Rather, it is those who desire the right things, that is, God or God's righteousness, who will be fully satisfied. God invites in Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come to the waters and satisfy your thirst. Come, buy and eat. You don't need money. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money? Why do you spend your energies for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Likewise, the psalmist encourages us, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And Jesus too said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Those who hunger and those who thirst shall be satisfied by God. You don't have to be righteous. You don't have to have righteousness to be blessed. It's those who desire it that will be blessed. It's the desire that pleases God. It's the desire that will ultimately be satisfied. And if that desire is not there, it may be because that our spirits are being held captive to false desires, to sin. We need to cultivate the right desires to desire God's righteousness. And that can only happen as we abide in Christ, as we acknowledge our poverty of spirit, as we allow the spirit to do the work of the spirit of transformation within us. I hope this is an encouragement to you that if you have any desire for righteousness, if you have any desire to see justice That is a sign of spiritual health. That is a sign of the spirit living and working in you. Keep on nurturing that hunger and that thirst and seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and you'll find satisfaction in everything else. Please pray with me this prayer by A.W. Tozer. Let's pray together. Oh God, I have tasted your goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. 
I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory. I pray that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up my love and come away. Then give me the grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.